reference, then I can use my fancy Bible program on here to, to, to look it up. So we're, I'm cheating a little bit. I know that. I don't have the whole thing memorized. I'm sorry. But, um, but maybe we can, can together look up some passages and, and uh, study deeply from God's Word tonight. So there are two opening rules that I always give whenever I have one of these uh, meetings like this. And uh, the two rules are just kind of guidelines for how I want you to ask questions and how I want to answer those questions. So first of all, I want you to understand that I hope you're okay with me saying I don't know. Because there will be times, and this is an important lesson for all of us to know, there will be times in your walk with Christ where you will come to a question that just does not have an answer. There are, as Paul calls it, mysteries of the faith. Things that we cannot answer this side of heaven. And uh, I would advise you to keep a list. <laughs> and, and maybe when you get to heaven, you can an- ask those questions and get answers to them if God doesn't just automatically answer them when you get there. But, but we, there will always be questions to the faith. That's why it's faith and not sight, okay? As Paul says, right now we see through a mirror dimly. We don't see perfectly as what the image is that we're looking at. Now, we see pieces of it, and there are hints of it, but what we can be confident of is that God has given us in His Word everything we need. Not every aspect of every little detail of every little problem but He has given us what we need for faith and practice. And so the things that we can know, we can know clearly. The things that we don't need to know are going to be fuzzy. Okay, So when we come to those fuzzy things, sometimes the best answer is just to say, you know what, we'll save that one for later. And there may be some aspects of this tonight that I just have to say, look, I don't know. And some of these things, I'm going to go into a lot more depth than I usually do on uh, sermons and things like that. Some of the, um, I'll give you some of the reasons behind why people think the way they think on some of these things. Uh, so we'll go into a little more depth than I would be able to in a, a regular sermon. But uh, I will try to always give you what I think at the end of that so that you, you can at least know why I think the way I think and where I'm, my head is on it. So the second rule is uh, I, I want to try to allow some follow-up to the questions that I'm going to answer, but in that, my intention in answering questions is not to debate. Okay, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to get in a debate with you over one particular question or not. If you want to debate, I'm happy to debate, but we'll do that afterwards. So if you have a sincere question or follow-up to what I say, then feel free to ask it and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll explore that further. But, um, you know, we're not going to sit here and argue over, over your view versus my view, okay? Uh, you're, we'll, we'll talk about that after the fact. But um, with that said, I've gotten a lot of good questions already, and I've gone ahead and written them down and I intend to answer them. If you, have, if, if you do have a question that you want to ask here, would you raise your hand? Does anybody, did anybody come with a question that you want to ask? Okay, good. Well, that means I can just go down the list of the questions I've already gotten. And they're very good, and they're probably questions you've already asked uh, or thought of and wanted to ask. 
and the I tried to order them kind of in in order of um, I guess ease of answer. So we'll, the heaviest one I've got is at the very end, and hopefully I'll be able to get to it by the end of the night tonight. So to start with, the first question I got was, why should I become a Christian if it's if it isn't fun? Why you know there are a lot of people that. Uh, are living fun lives out there, and they're they're uh, they're having a big old time. You know, they're able to have relationships that they want to have outside of marriage, and they're able to um, they're able to drink to till they're slap uh, drunk and and do what they want to do with substances. They're able to uh, to have whatever they want and not worry about giving any of it to the church, and and they're able to do just whatever they want, and it's fun. So why would anyone want to come to faith in Christ? Why would anyone want to believe in Christ and and submit to Him as their Lord if it isn't fun? Um, And and it's hard. Uh, Ultimately, you know, Jesus says that if if they hated me, they will hate you. So why would would anybody in their right mind want to uh, adopt a belief system and follow a leader that said, hey, people are going to hate you for this? Um, so I have several answers to that, uh, several points to that that I want to give you tonight. First of all, um, the answer that the book of Ecclesiastes gives is that ultimately faith is fleeting. I mean, fun is fleeting. I shouldn't say faith. Fun is fleeting. That ultimately you can seek pleasure and you can seek wealth and you can seek uh, wisdom, and you can seek all of these worldly things, and they will get you somewhere for a time. You know, if you are a big womanizer, and you go and have a relationship with all these different women, and you enjoy their company, and you, you have a good time, that will get you somewhere for a little while. It'll make you happy for a time. But... It will come back to haunt you at some point too. Especially the more women you have, the more it will haunt you. Uh, <laughs> but it will it will end up biting you at some at some point. Or as the writer of Ecclesiastes says, it's vanity, or it's vapor. So it will it will evaporate after a time. It'll be all fun and romantic and exciting for a couple of weeks, and then what happens? Then she, then she, who said broke? You get broke. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> then you run out of money, and she doesn't like you anymore because it doesn't make up for your ugliness. Uh, <laughs> so uh, yes, exactly. You, it, it's fleeting and it 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 evaporates over time. And and same thing's true of wealth. You know, you hear all of these stories about people who get great rich uh, riches, and they have all this wealth and they're just the most miserable people you ever met. Some of the most wealthiest people I've ever the wealthiest people I've ever met are the most miserable because they don't know Christ and they don't have an answer to the real problem of their heart. And so because of that, the money just makes them more miserable. And and it is true uh, with the little bit of stuff that I do have, I can tell you it is true that the more things you own, the more things on you. Uh, it is true that when you have stuff, you have obligations that you didn't realize you were going to have. 
And that it ends up not being a delight, but being a chore. And so fun is fleeting. And at some point, those things come to come. They vaporize. They become less meaningful. Uh, Second, there's a difference between happiness and joy. Uh, Happiness is something that we all pursue. It's something we want. But we, as Christians, we don't have to be happy to be joyful. Some of the most joyful people I've ever met are Christians who are in the midst of suffering, who are facing a cancer diagnosis, or who live in squalor, like I saw some Christians in Haiti that were living in just terrible, abject poverty, and yet they sang at the top of their lungs praises to God in a revival meeting because they really were joyful even though they had just experienced an earthquake that flattened their home and they had literally nothing. They didn't have anything to start with and they still had most of it. So it was, uh, it was, they could not have anything in this life that would make them happy and yet they were still joyful. And so there's a difference in having a momentary happiness and we all want that. You know, if I'm sitting on a kayak on a creek, floating down the creek, I'm happy. I can t- unless there's mosquitoes, then I'm not so or horseflies, then I'm not so happy. But if I if I'm there, that's my happy place, but I'm not always there. And I can live for that moment, but that moment will be fleeting. Every time I get the kayak out of the water, I got the chore of pulling it up and washing it off and doing all of that and then it, I got to go back to work and And I'm not happy anymore, (laughs) but I'm still joyful because I have Christ. So thirdly, um, there's a difference to, to say that I want to live for what is fun is to have a short view of life. And there's a difference in living life in the moment and living life for eternity. And that is the difference. That's the difference that the Bible distinguishes between the life of sight, the life that is lived based on your appetites and what you see in front of you, and the life of faith. Okay? The life of sight lives for what is right in front of you. It lives for the next paycheck, for the next beer, for the next woman, for the next whatever. And it is never satisfied, it is always hungry, and it never finds true joy. The life of faith lives for eternity. It doesn't live for what is right in front of you. It lives for the promises of God. And so uh, those who see the, trans, uh, the, the transient things as ultimate, there are those who see that just what they see in front of them as the ultimate to life, and that's the only reason to live. But then there are those who see the eternal as the ultimate. And we, as Christians, we see the eternal life as that which is ultimate. And there will be a day when everyone will be forced to see it that way. (laughs) And that is the last reason that we shouldn't just live for fun. Because there will be a day of judgment coming. And those who have lived for their appetite... Those who have lived for fun, 
those who have lived against God's will so that they might live for their own will will face the, the eternal judgment of hell for, what, for the way that they have lived. And because of that, we who live for the eternal trust in Christ and we rest in what He has done and we wait on Him and we will enjoy the reward, the blessing of heaven. So that's, uh, that's my answer to that. Uh, that question. Or any any follow up questions to that before we move on to the next one? All right. Well, the next question is: uh, Can our loved ones see us from heaven, or do that, or how much do they know about us in heaven? And so now we're going to get into some scripture. So let's look up Luke chapter sixteen. Luke 16, starting in verse 19. This is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. It says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. This rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame." But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. And Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So I read that passage to establish the idea of what can be known and is known by those who are in heaven or hell. And one of the things that you see there in this parable is um, that... uh, Lazarus seems to be taken up in joy. Lazarus, in some of your translations may have said, was in the bosom of Abraham. He was, in other words, he was comforted by Abraham. And he's enjoying the fellowship of Abraham. He's enjoying the fellowship of heaven to the point that he is 
unaware of the plight of this rich man in hell. But the rich man is well aware of Lazarus and the situation that Lazarus is in. Um, So I established that to say that there is an ongoing knowledge of who we were and who we are after death. That's a, it's a popular thing to say, well, we won't know our loved ones. We won't know, or, or I get that question a lot, I should say. I don't know if it's a popular thing. Uh, you know, we won't, we won't know who we are or what we've been in heaven. But, the, you know, at least from the experience of the rich man in hell, and I think comparatively, uh, it's assumed that Lazarus would have known who the rich man was because he tells, he says, let Lazarus go back, you know, or send someone back to tell people about this judgment. So it's, uh, it's apparent that Lazarus is still who Lazarus is. He's recognizable to the rich man. He's, you know, the rich man knows who he is. Um, he knows who Abraham is, you know, all that kind of stuff. So it's apparent that we have memory and association and, and all of that in heaven. So um, it's not the case. I don't believe that uh, we just become a mindless soul or a, a disassociated soul in heaven, that rather we, we carry on our experience and our consciousness with God in heaven. Um, the second point is from Revelation 6. So flip, flip with me to Revelation 6. Verses 9 through 11. Revelation 6, verse 9 through 11. It says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be uh, complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Now this is a popular uh, theme that you find throughout the book of Revelation or is this group that are called the souls before the altar of God. And they at several points during the book of Revelation have a, a part to play. They have a, a, a dialogue with an angel or with God. And here they're calling out because they know what's going on on the earth. You notice that. They know that God's purposes have not yet been fulfilled on the earth. And they're asking, how long will it be before you accomplish what you have set out to do? And so there seems to be in this passage and throughout the book of Revelation, this awareness by those who have passed on and, and particularly by those who have been persecuted and died as a result of their faith, that they know what God is doing. They know what's going on on earth. And so they know that God, where God is in the stage of His uh, purpose in history. And so uh, to answer the question, really, I can't say whether our loved ones know us, know everything about us and know what we're doing at any one particular time in our lives or anything like that. Um, But I do know that they know, based on this, what's going on with God's redemptive plan on earth. I don't know if they know what Nathan Skipper is doing right now 
But I do know that they know that God is bringing about things that happen on earth for His purpose. And I know that's not a full answer to the question, but again, I can only answer as far as Scripture will let me. Now, there is another passage that is very popular to use in answering this question, which is Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, which says, Therefore, since we have been surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us press on. And so some people would use that passage to say, See, those who have died in the faith, they are like witnesses that are watching what we're doing. But actually, the idea, as we talked about in, in our study of the book of Hebrews, the idea there is that they are witnesses of God's faithfulness. They're not witnesses to what we're doing. They're witnesses to what God has done. So it's not a witness of our lives. It's a witness of what God has done. So that's as far as I can answer, I think. But any uh, follow-up question to that? Would that be in the spiritual realm when all that second place? Yes, sir. That's that's in heaven as we. Yes, sir. Before um, before God judges the world and and brings about the new heavens and the new earth. Yes, sir. Any other question? All right. Um, So the next question is, and this is a this is one that comes up a lot, and it it's. Another one of those that we probably end up just having to say, I don't know. But it's the question of, what about Cain's wife? So you read in Genesis chapter 4 that after Cain was judged by God for killing his brother Abel, that he left and he went to the east, to a, a city. And there he, he, he had a wife and he had children and it details all that and, and all. Well, Cain and Abel are the first two children of who? Adam and Eve. And if Adam and Eve are the only two people on the world in the world, where did Cain's wife come from? Okay? So that's the problem. So people have, of course, theologians have d- debated this for centuries. And um, there are two decent answers to this that I want to give. There are other answers, but I'm not going to give you those unless you want to know after the fact. But the two popular answers to that is the single Adam view and the community view. Okay, so the single Adam view is that uh, that Adam and Eve were created, and they as a single man and a single woman who were uh, the first man and woman, and they had children after that, Cain and Abel and Seth, and 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 so on, and that. Uh, what you see, though, in the book of Genesis, and you'll see this if you read the first four chapters, it just is, it pops out immediately, is Genesis kind of follows, especially for the first 11 chapters, it follows this format of a general story and a specific story. And a general story and a specific story. Okay, so for example, Genesis chapter 1 is the general story of God's creation of the earth. And then Genesis chapter 2 is a specific story about his special creation of man. Now, Genesis 1 has the creation of man on day 6, but then on Genesis 2, you zoom in and you see a specific story. And Genesis 4 is like that. It's a specific story. And it says, sometime after is how the story begins. So, 
Adam lives to be like 900 years old or something like that. I can't remember. Y'all don't quote me on it, but he lives a long time. And at some point during his 900 years, he had two sons named Cain and Abel. Okay? And between the time he left Eden and the time he had Cain and Abel, we don't know how long that is. We don't know how long it was between the time he had Cain and the time he had Abel. But one thing that is, is very clear is that the Bible rarely, especially in lineages, the Bible or Gen- the book of Genesis rarely, if ever, mentions daughters. It never says he had this many daughters. It just says, it doesn't even say how many other sons they had. It just mentions the important ones, the ones that define humanity. Okay, And so what's likely the case from the single Adam view, is that Adam and Eve had a lot of, uh, of sons and daughters and that uh, Cain and Abel are focused on as the two because, that, that the story focuses on because their story is significant. It's the first murder in the Bible. But at some point, Cain and, uh, Adam and Eve had daughters and Cain marries one of those daughters. That's where his wife comes from. Now, this view, and I'm going to present what the view is and then the problems with the view. The very obvious problem with this is what? He married his sister, and that's incest. And that, that's wrong, bro, right? <laughs> At least uh, my three kids are saying that right now. Um, so, so we just know, we just, ugh, you know, that's, that's not right. Um, so I, hold that in your mind. I'll cut, no, you may not want to hold that in your mind, but hold that in your mind, and I'll come back to you, to that in just a minute. The other view is the community view, and the community view is that Adam is the representative head of a group of humans that were created by God at the beginning of Genesis, uh, in Genesis chapter two. So uh, Adam is like the king of this group of people, and therefore he represents them. And whatever he does represents the people that he is king over, okay? And so um, he, uh, when Adam sins, he brings his community into sin, not just, uh, not just himself, now, the problem with that is, and this is the problem, the main problem with that view, and to me, in my opinion, this is an in, insurmountable problem. The problem with that is that Paul, particularly, always talks about Adam as a single human being. Okay? And for example, in Acts chapter 17, verse 26, he tells the uh, people at the Areopagus, the philosophers at the Areopagus, that from one man... God created all of mankind, okay? Pretty clear there that Paul at least thinks that all of humanity came from one, uh, one person. And then secondly, uh, Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says that through one man sin entered the world and death through sin because all people came from Adam. So there's this idea of kind of a... a um, a uh, ancestral inheritance of sin that we inherit sin from Adam because we all are of Adam. Okay, um, 
so that's uh, that is the problem with the community view, and and my view is the single atom view because of the problem of sin. If we were to say that it's a community and uh, Adam sins, well, that's Adam's problem. That's not my problem. I'm a descendant of one of the other people in the community. You know, maybe maybe is my hope. And, and we could get into the point of saying, well, you know, there are certain classes of people that are sinful and there are other classes of people that are descendants of uh, these other people in the community and they're not sinful. So it doesn't really work in the way that we believe a sin descends through, the, through humanity. Is it doesn't really work for our theology to say that Adam represented a group of humans. Uh, and the other thing is uh, incest, the problem of incest doesn't get you around. If you say, all right, you know, I can't believe that Adam and Eve were only the only two humans and that Cain married his sister. So I need to believe in a community of people to get around this incest problem. Well, you got another problem. What about Noah? What about Abraham who married his half-sister? What about Isaac, who married his cousin? What about uh, Jacob, who also married his cousin? Cousins, Cousins. Cousins. good point. Yeah, (laughs) he did it multiple times. So um, we have a problem with incest, and our problem with incest is not because of the Bible. Now, that might shock you, but our problem with incest comes more out of a, a 20th century ideal of having the perfect human race and, and having uh, children that don't have disabilities and things like that. And that's all good, and we need, to, we need to watch out for that and be careful about that. But there's nothing in the Bible that forbids marrying someone of your own tribe or family. If it did, then Israel would not exist, okay? As a nation, Israel would not exist. Now, there are laws that we tend to view as laws against incest, where it says you shall not sleep with your, uh, your daughter as with uh, a wife. But that's an issue of fornication or rape. That's not an issue of, uh, you know, making a match with your cousin. Now, I know we have social norms that say do not do that, and I'm okay with that. I would, not, I would never in a million years consider marrying my sister, okay, <laughs> or even my close cousin. But as I, I met with Miss Polly before, uh, before I came here, Miss Polly Herring, and we were talking about who I'm related to and all that, and as we got to working it out, you just realize, hey, we probably need to stop <laughs> because... <laughs> Because at some point, everybody in Alabama is related, especially in, in Georgiana and McKenzie. You know, it's, it, it, it gets kind of dangerous when you, uh, when you get to thinking about it. I, I had a uh, Bible uh, study class teacher tell us one time that the gene pool was not polluted back then. <laughs> <laughs> the gene pool was polluted today. Mm. And that, that's a difference in, in legality and wisdom, okay? Legally, it's allowed. Um, it's not allowed in in America, but it, legally in Scripture it was allowed. Wisdom, though, probably not always wise to do it. All right. So that that all, I think, answers that question. I hope it answers that question. 
Next question, unless y'all got a follow-up. Anybody got a follow-up question? Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Willie. Hey, I was on a job one night about 20 years ago, and a guy asked me the same thing about that. Who did he came here? I said, look here. I said, I don't know. Uh-huh. I said, all I can tell you is this. What God's word said, I said, that's what we got to go with. This, yeah. Anything in between, don't rattle your brain about it. Don't right. worry about it. God don't reveal it to you now. Right, that's a good point. And it's not integral to the story. You know, it's not like it's, it makes a difference to the story of Genesis 4 and 5 and 6 as to where his wife came from. You know, it, it's, a, it, it, it's just kind of an ancillary point that, that the Bible makes. So don't get tripped up. Don't strain at a gnat and swallow a camel, in other words. Don't, don't make a big deal over something small in Scripture. Um. So, let's see, next question. Uh, Matthew 5.18, and we'll look at that here in a minute. Uh, in Matthew 5.18, if you want to go ahead and turn there, you can. Well, i got butterfingers now. In Matthew 5.18, Jesus says that he fulfilled the need to sacrifice, but why are all other laws void by his sacrifice? What is the nature of the law after Christ? So the question is, basically, it seems that what Jesus is saying here is that he fulfilled the law and, and he especially voids the need for the sacrificial system so um, if he did that, then are all laws in the Old Testament void? And if that's the case, then why do Christians still put yard signs that say, I believe in the Ten Commandments? Or why do we have the Ten Commandments back there? Or why am I talking about on Sunday morning about the Sabbath when um, they've been abrogated by Jesus? You know, why, why is it that we talk about them still if, if uh, the law... Is been, has been abolished by Jesus. So with that, there are three views about how the Old Testament law applies to the Christian today. The first one is the abolition view, and that is that God, Jesus abolished the Old Testament law when he died on the cross. So the Old Testament law no longer applies to the Christian. It basically, you can throw out the Old Testament and it wouldn't matter to your Christian faith. You could just get rid of it and it wouldn't have any bearing on your walk with Christ. The second view is the continuance view, which is the exact opposite of that. And that is that you should double down on the law and you should obey the law to the every dot and tittle because it's still in full effect. So a good example of that would be the Seventh-day Adventists who say, well, we need to still have uh, worship on Saturday because Saturday is the Sabbath and we need to do it that the way the Old Testament says to do it. And the last view, which is our view as Baptist, and it's our view, my, my view particularly, is the fulfillment view. So to see that, let's read Matthew chapter 17, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 through 19. It says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or, or the prophets. So there you go, the abolishment view is, is done in that one statement. 
I have not come to abolish them, but to what? Fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same be called, uh, will be called least in the kingdom of God, uh, kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus does not seem to ascribe to the abolition, uh, abolition view of the Old Testament. And um, now, so either he is saying that the law continues as it was in the Old Testament, or that it has a different nature with him. And the key word that I want to focus in on is what he says there with, that I just had you quote, what was it, in verse um, 17. I have come to fulfill the law. So scholars break the Old Testament law down into three categories. There is the sacrificial law, which is all the laws, the Levitical laws about how you offer certain sacrifices at this time and you do this with the lamb and you do this with the blood and you do all this different stuff. Okay, And it is very clear from the New Testament that Jesus put an end to that, to that category of the law. The writer of Hebrews, as we've been studying, says that Jesus, put, I mean, literally says that he has ended the sacrifice. There is no more need for sacrifice now that Jesus has come. Uh, he is the once and for all sacrifice. Now, that's not saying that the sacrifices didn't do anything or that, they, that, that we don't need a sacrifice. What it's saying is that we have a sacrifice, that Jesus is our sacrifice. Second category is the judicial law. And this is all of the Old Testament laws about, you know, uh, how you care, how, you know, um, all, the, all the different case laws that you have in the Old Testament. You know, if, you, if you're caught in adultery, then you're stoned to death. If you're, you know, if you, um, are, are, if you murder accidentally, if you commit manslaughter, then you have a city of refuge. If you don't commit manslaughter, you actually commit murder, then you're, you're killed. You know, if you do this or that, you have to do some other response. And those laws were specific to the nation of Israel. They were meant to tell Israel how to govern as a nation. Now, they are still useful, though, for us as Christians. And let me give you one example. If you flip to real quick to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. It says, For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for the ox, oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher should thresh in hope uh, of sharing in the crop. So what he's saying is he's taking this Old Testament judicial law about not being cruel to animals, effectively is what it is, and, uh, and he applies it, interestingly, to paying your pastor. Okay, that's what he's talking about there. And he says, look, you shouldn't work a man to death and then not pay him. 
you should be ready to pay the one that works. And so uh, he, he takes this Old Testament judicial law and he uses the principle of it. If you're not going to abuse an animal, then maybe you shouldn't abuse your pastor <laughs> is, is kind of the way he applies it. Okay, And he says, look, it's, it's for our benefit that this law exists. So the, the judicial law, it doesn't apply directly to us. We don't stone people who are caught in adultery because we're of a different nation than the nation of Israel. Um, but, but we still can learn something, particularly with that example, about how God views adultery. He didn't think it was too cute, right? So, so we, can, we can apply it in that way. And then the last category is the category of the moral law. And um, first of all, Jesus was, and the moral law are the Ten Commandments, okay? These laws that have timeless application, they're rooted in our worship of God and rooted in our relationship to each other. They're not rooted in, you know, a particular nation. They're not rooted in a sacrificial system. They're rooted in our relationship to each other. And they still apply today. So... Uh, Jesus, though, was the obedient Israelite. He was the one who was completely obedient to all of the Old Testament law. He fulfilled the sacrificial law in his death and his resurrection. He fulfilled the judicial law in that Jesus was tried in a sham trial. Jesus did everything right by the, the, the Old Testament law, and yet he was still killed for his faithfulness to it. And then lastly, he fulfilled the moral law. In fact, he takes it in this Matthew 5 chapter and he expands it. And he says, look, you, you think that you've done well by not, not killing your brother. But I tell you, if you hate your brother in your heart, that's the real murder. That's really where murder comes from. And so he extends the moral law. He doesn't abolish it or get rid of it. He extends it. And... Interestingly, the New Testament frames all of the Ten Commandments in the light of Jesus. So just like this morning, when I went through the law on the Sabbath, uh, I showed how Jesus doesn't get rid of the Sabbath. He fulfills the Sabbath and he extends the Sabbath. So now we worship on the first day of the week because Jesus rose again from the dead and he establishes that as the pattern for our week as we worship Him on the first day of the week. But He doesn't say, don't pay any of mine to that Sabbath rule. Instead, He says, now consider it in light of me. Consider it in light of who I am. So that's, that's the way that the law still applies. All right? Next question, and I'm trying to get to the, all of them, so hold on. We're going to move pretty quick here. Where did the angels come from before man was created, and why was Lucifer created evil if God is sovereign? Um, Heaven is supposed to be without sin, and can you do something to get tossed out of heaven? So that's a lot of questions. I'm going to answer the main heart of that question, which is, where did the angels come from before men, and uh, how did God create Satan evil And why would he do that if heaven is supposed to be without sin? All right, so where did the angels come from? I don't know, but there does seem to be some indication. We don't read it this way, but there does seem to be some indication in 
Genesis chapter 1. And um, for the sake of time, I'm not going to flip there, have you flip there. But in Genesis chapter 1, verses 14 through 18, which is the fourth day, the, the, uh, God's fourth day of creation, it says that He made the, the sun and the moon and the, the stars, right? Y'all remember that day of creation. And he, said, he says, let them rule over the day and the night and let them have dominion. So our translations don't read this way, but this is what it literally means in the Hebrew. Let them have dominion over times and seasons and, and, uh, and, and all that. So um, it, there's a good bit of evidence that the way the Hebrews understood that was that this was when God established the angels. Because the Old Testament Hebrews believed that the stars and the moon and the sun, they actually represented, I'm not saying they believed they were angels, but they believed that they represented the angels. So what is in view there is they basically in the fourth day, God is creating the heavenly host. He's creating the rulers of heaven. And he's giving them dominion over seasons and times and places and things like that. And you see that also in Psalm chapter, uh, Psalm 148, which I preached through a while back, where the psalmist starts with the heavenly beings, and then he moves to the, um, to the creeping things and the things in the sea, and then he moves to man. That's actually day four, day five, and day six of creation. And so... The way the psalmist addresses the, the living things in heaven and earth is in the same way that the, I think the Jews viewed the days of creation. So if I had to pick a day on which the angels were created, it would be day four. And that's all I got on that. I'm sorry. Um, the, um, so what about Satan? Did God create Satan evil? No, he didn't. He created him good. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 28 verses 11 through 19 give us a metaphor of Satan. And Satan is created as, the, the, uh, as one of the cherubim that guarded the throne room of God. And it says that he fell because of his pride, that he became prideful. He wanted to take the throne of God for himself. And as a result, he rebelled against God and was cast out of heaven. So um, you can go read that on your own. Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 11 through 19. God did not create Lucifer sinful. He created him good. And he, like Adam and Eve, sinned against God by their own uh, fruition. And they uh, fell from heaven. All right? So that, uh, that answers most of that question at least. Then the last one I got, and I do not have time at all to answer it, and it was the one I really wanted to answer. If we can go five extra minutes, y'all, all all right with that? All right, all right, all right, good. So the last question is, please explain the concept of predestined from Romans chapter 8, verses 29 through 30, and Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through, I'm going to say, the person asked 4 through 5, but I'm going to go 4 through 6. Um. And then, uh, is predestined, elect, and chosen the same or different? So, real quickly, let's go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 8. Let me see if I can get both of these pulled up here. 
Romans chapter 8, and then hold your finger there and flip over to Ephesians chapter 1. Alright, so I'm going to have to bear down on this one a little bit. This is probably the hot topic of our of the church in our generation. Okay, it's actually hotly debated within the Southern Baptist Convention as it is right now. It's a, a big uh, topic of discussion. If you've ever had a Presbyterian friend, you've probably talked about it at some point. Uh, um, so that uh, it's a very popular thing to talk about. It is uh, something that Baptists wrestle with because we tend to kind of float between two worlds, all right, when it comes to that. And let me explain what I mean by that. Um, the, the question that we're going to address as I work through this is the, the, the debate kind of circles around the question of does God choose to save us based on something foreseen in us or based on his own purposes? So does God choose to save us because he sees, looks down through the corridors of time and he sees that um, Nathan Skipper had faith in Christ and therefore he says, okay, I will accept him into my family? Or does God purpose to save us and our faith is the result of that, not the cause of it? Does that make sense? That's the problem, okay? And um, the, uh, that there are two big competing views of that question. One is called Calvinism, and Calvinism is, the, um, is named after John Calvin, who was the uh, 16th century reformer in France. And uh, John Calvin is uh, a very popular theologian and influenced a lot of people, and uh, most denominations, uh, Protestant denominations, come out of, in large part, his influence. Uh, the other is Arminianism, which is named after Jacobus Arminius. Uh, and Jacob, Jacobus Arminius and Calvin did not live together, okay, or did not live at the same time. Calvin came before Arminius. And uh, so there's Calvinism and there's Arminianism. And Calvinism says that God's election of those who are saved is unconditional. It's not based on anything you do, whether it be foreseen faith or any good works you do or anything else. It is based on His purpose to save you alone. He chooses before the foundation of the world to save you, and that's why ultimately you come to faith in Christ and are saved. Arminius, on the other hand, says, no, God's election of you is Conditional. It's based on his looking and seeing that you would accept Christ as your Savior or that you had a good heart or whatever the case may be and choosing to save you as a result of what he sees in you. Okay? So that's all hotly debated. If you want a, a good kind of modern day division of that, Presbyterians are staunchly Calvinist. Methodists are staunchly Arminian. John Wesley was a devout Arminian, and is a, those two denominations are good examples of the difference in Calvinism and Arminianism. 
Baptist, particularly Southern Baptist, historically, and this may shock you, historically, Baptists were Calvinist. Uh, Baptists are, or Southern Baptists, come out of uh, the Presbyterian denomination mostly. Uh, there is a group of general Baptists. You might know them as the free will Baptists. But Cal- uh, Bab- Calvinistic Baptists are kind of the, the root of where Southern Baptists came from. You have, uh, for example, the first well-known Baptist Confession of Faith is the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689, which took the Presbyterian Confession, the Westminster Confession, copied it, said they were copying it, and changed the statements on baptism and a few other things. But they kept pretty much everything else the same. The first, uh, most of the big Baptist theologians that you might know, like... um, Andrew Fuller and uh, uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, um, B.H. Carroll, uh, even W.A. Criswell. I don't know if you've ever heard of W.A. Criswell, but he was a, the pastor at First Baptist of Dallas. They were all Calvinists. W.A. Criswell says in one of his sermons, I am a Calvinist. So Calvinism has had a strong representation in Southern Baptist life for a long time. That changed during the 20th century, and uh, Arminianism started to be more of what uh, Baptists began to hold to. And uh, in recent years, Calvinism has kind of come back into the spotlight and has started to be a popular view in Baptist life again. So, uh, let's see, what's my next point? To be... Up front with you and honest, and I told everybody this to start with in the, in the search committee, I am a Calvinist. I believe in uh, the, the view of John Calvin on this issue, and I'll explain why here in just a minute. But um, the, that being said, I totally understand the Arminian view. I used to be Arminian. I don't have a problem with it at all. But uh, Calvinism, to me, holds closer to Scripture, and I'll explain why that is here in just a second. But let, let's start with things that we all agree on. I think everyone in this room believes that you cannot be saved unless God chooses to save you. Right? You cannot be saved unless God chooses to save you. Now, we might differ on how that happens, but God ain't got to save you. Right? He's not obligated to do anything for you. He saves you, not by anything you've done, but by His good grace. And Arminians and Calvinists agree 100% on that. We also agree on, uh, I don't think anybody will dispute that God chose Israel, right? Chose them for no other reason than to fulfill His purpose. So let's look at an example of that. And we have to understand this idea of election in view of Israel, because that's what Paul's going to be talking about here. But let's flip over real quick to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Which is not too far from where we were this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 7, uh, verses 6 through 8. It says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all of the peoples who are on the face of the earth. 
It was not because you were more in number than any other people that God set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So the reason I want to read that is it kind of establishes what Paul has in mind when he talks about this idea of election. That God, in the Old Testament, He chose Israel not because they were a great nation. He didn't choose them because they had a lot in number. And he's like, man, them people are going to represent me well because they are a bunch of folks. He chose them instead, it says, because you were the fewest of all the peoples. You were the least. And that's a theme that runs in the, Old, in the New Testament as well. You know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. So it seems to be that God chooses to do things that magnify His glory. He chooses Israel not because Israel is great, but specifically because they're not great, so that His name might be magnified in what He does for them. And so let's carry that over, that idea of the purpose of God's election, to Romans chapter 8, verse 29 through 30 says, Romans chapter 8, verse 29 through 30. <clears throat> Where did it go? There it is. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And then flip over to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us and predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. So those two passages are pretty strongly uh, worded with this idea of predestination or election or whatever you might call it. So the question that this person sent me asked, you know, predestination, election, chosen, are all, all those words the same or are they different concepts? So I want to define these different words, um, and, and in defining them, they'll help us to understand it. So in Romans chapter 8, it starts by saying, those whom, whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Now when you read that, you say, aha, I got you, Nathan. It says he knew us, and what that means is he saw down through the corridors of time, and he saw that we would have faith and and he saved it, and he chose to save us. But actually, the word foreknown means to know and set one's love upon a person. So the word to know is the same idea as what it says in Genesis chapter 2, or Genesis chapter 5, actually, 
when it says that Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived and bore a son. That's the same word as what we read in Exodus, I mean in Romans chapter 8. Um, also, and I didn't look up this reference, but I can look it up if you, if you need it. But Peter says that Jesus was foreknown, foreknown before the foundation of the world. Now, did, Jesus, did God foresee Jesus or did he know him before? He knew him, right? He knew who he was. So the idea of foreknowing is not foresight. God doesn't really foresee anything. He foreknows it. He knows you beforehand. He sets his heart upon you. And this is the beautiful thing about the concept of election is that God... If you're saved today, it's because God purposed to save you. Before the world ever began, God said, I'm going to save you. And the things in your life that have happened, and most of you probably got testimonies of this, where you can look back at how God used this or that or whatever it might be, and you look back on it and you say, man, I see how God was working all of that together so that I would come to the point where I would say, I've got to believe this. This is true. And we can look and we can say that and, and we see it and we say, well, God's been working a long time on saving me. And that's the concept of foreknowledge is that God set his mind on you. He knew you before the foundation of the world. Second, the word predestined. So the word predestined means to predetermine, to determine beforehand. Now, this is always in the idea of uh, uh, this is always related to being made to be like Jesus. So if you notice in Romans uh, chapter 8, verse 29, it says that he, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So just like God before the foundation of the world set his heart on you and determined that he was going to save you, he purposed that you would be made to be like his son, Jesus. So what we're doing tonight, the, all, all of your life is God's orchestration to make you to be like Jesus. That's his purpose for you. And so predestined is the idea of determining beforehand, I'm going to make Nathan Skipper to be like my son, Jesus. And then the last word is the word chose. And we saw that word in Ephesians 1. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That word chose, me, choose or chose, means to set apart or to call out. Okay, so it's the idea of God saying, like the nation of Israel, and that's the reason I wanted to go to Deuteronomy 7, is God says, I didn't choose you because you were least, I cho- or greatest, I chose you because you were least, or I, I, you are, were the least among the nations. So if you think of the nation of Israel as being set apart, right? That's the way we talk about them, as they were set apart by God for his purposes. That's the idea of chosen, that God has saved you so that you would be set apart by God, so that you would be set apart. And that's why it's so important that we as Christians, we live in obedience to God because we're supposed to be different. We're supposed to be set apart. And um, but God chooses, as the writer, of, uh, as 
Paul says in Ephesians, he chose to do that before the foundation of the world. He chose to do it. He chose to set you apart before the foundation of the world. Um, So I'm sure you're wondering, and I'll go ahead and address it. What about the passages that say, whosoever will may come or, or, uh, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Or, and what about freedom of choice? What about our response to the gospel? Yes, I know that God worked my life in a way that I would hear the gospel and that it would be undeniable and all of that. But what about, I, I know that I also believe the gospel. I know that I also received the truth of the gospel. So what about that? So for that, let's look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. <clears throat> It says, And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God... Being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And what does that last part say? By grace you have been saved. So, what about the whosoever and the freedom of choice? We got to understand our response to the gospel and our freedom as human beings in light of what the Bible says. So Ephesians chapter 2 starts by saying, and you were what? Dead in your trespasses and sin. We, in our natural state as sinners, are dead to the things of God. We are spiritually dead. It is only by, notice verse 4 says what? How does it start? Two words. But God, who is rich in mercy, it is only by God's grace that we are able to understand and believe the gospel. It is only by God's work in our heart through the power of his Holy Spirit that we are brought to life and are able to believe the gospel. So this is the idea of enabling grace, that God, through his Holy Spirit, He causes us to be made alive. And then when we come to life, when our spirit comes to life, we believe the gospel and are saved. Okay, so um, we when you see this is why I say when you see someone come to faith in Christ, you ought to rejoice because you have witnessed a miracle. You have witnessed God at work in somebody's life. It is God who causes people to understand and believe the gospel. This is one reason I don't put a whole lot of stock. I used to, but I don't put a whole lot of stock in apologetics, in giving reasons for the faith. Now, I I will. If somebody asks me, why do you believe this about the Bible or whatever, I'll gladly give them a reason. But it is not until the, the Holy Spirit changes their heart that they will receive that. I can give the best answer known to man about the creation of the world or 
or um, the resurrection of Christ, but unless God, through His Holy Spirit, changes their heart, they will not believe it. And now that sounds very Baptist, right? And the reason it sounds very Baptist is because you all were raised not knowing it in a stream of Calvinism. <laughs> you didn't even know it. Because that is a very Calvinistic idea, that God must change our hearts for us to be able to receive the gospel. Now, as far as what about the whosoevers, whosoever will may come. Whosoever is willing to receive the gospel will, may come. Whether they be uh, uh, you know, a drunkard or as far away from the gospel as they can be, a murderer, a uh, uh, whatever race they are, whatever nationality they are, wherever they're coming from, whosoever will may come to Christ and receive salvation. The question is, who will? And that is answered by the ones who, by God's Holy Spirit, have been convicted of their sin and brought to repentance. That is who will come, is those who God has worked to change. Now we are called to share the gospel with whosoever. We don't know who God is working on at this, at this moment. We don't know when people come to VBS tomorrow night, we don't know which kids or which adults God is working on in their lives. So we're responsible to share the gospel to everybody and let God do the work of salvation. The most comfortable thing, comforting thing I've ever heard in evangelism is the fact that it's not up to me. It's not up to me to convert someone. It's not up to me to bring someone to repentance. I am called to be faithful. I'm called to tell the truth about who Jesus is and what He's done. And then I get to sit back and watch as God does the work. And God will do the work because He's faithful. So that's, that's uh, the best I can do on... Uh, the question of predestination. I'll be glad. I'm way over time, and I know y'all still got choir practice. So if you want to catch me after service and ask me more about it, I'd be glad to talk further with any of you on any of these questions. Or if you want to text me, y'all, yeah, I think y'all all have my cell phone or, or Facebook Messenger, whatever you want to do, email me. Um, I'd be glad. Man, I love this stuff. I love uh, talking theology and, and, and Bible questions and things like that. Uh, or we're going to be spending the rest of the week together. So if you want to catch me at some point and ask, ask questions, then, then please do. Let's close with a word of prayer. And Bill, we, just, we won't, we won't uh, end in song. We'll just end with a prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You that Your Word is, tr- is true. And as William has already said, it is clear enough in the places where we uh, need to know. It is clear enough for, the, for our salvation. It is clear enough for our sanctification. And the things that are mysterious are meant to be mysterious. They're meant for us to, to ponder, but also to rest and rely on you for the answer and to, to even patiently wait for you to give us answers at the end of all things. Father, I pray that we would be faithful to share the gospel, that we would be faithful to, uh, to pray for those who do not know you to come to faith in Christ. Lord, I pray that this week would be a great Uh, celebration as we watch the miracle of salvation happen in the lives of those who come to faith through VBS. Father, bless us now as we go from this place. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.